What kind of impact has recently deceased Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez had on the people of Venezuela and on the world? And what evidence is there that his recent death may have been part of a Washington-directed assassination attempt? On the occasion of his recent state funeral, we'll spend most of the hour discussing this question with someone who has advised the government and met Chavez in person, Professor Michel Chosodovsky of the Center for Research on Globalization. And also, with tensions flaring in the Korean Peninsula, does the aggressive posturing by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un reflect threats from an unstable rogue regime, or is it understandable in the face of recent and historic actions from the U.S.? Writer and political analyst Gregory Elich will put the Korean situation in context for us later in the hour. On today's program, the legacy of Chavez and the Korean powder keg. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 14th, 2013. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with some of the major stories shaping the national and international political landscape. According to a U.S. Treasury Department document, the Obama administration is planning to allow U.S. spy agencies access to a massive database containing financial information of Americans and others who do business with the nation's banks. The yet-to-be-implemented planning document, dated March 4th, represents a major step by U.S. intelligence agencies to monitor crime syndicates and terrorist networks. Under the plan, agencies such as the Central Intelligence Agency and the National Security Agency would have access to more raw financial data than ever before, assisting them in establishing patterns which would reveal attack plots or criminal schemes. Financial institutions are required by law to log reports of suspicious customer activity, such as cash transfers of over $10,000, to the Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN. Privacy watchdogs have raised concerns, however, that applying the plan could ensnare people innocent of terrorist activity, leaving them vulnerable to being falsely accused. That comes to us from Reuters. According to state media, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has informed his frontline military forces to prepare for the possibility of a war. North Korea told troops stationed near disputed waters that war could break out at any moment. It is saying the armistice that ended the Korean War has been scrapped and is threatening a preemptive nuclear strike against the United States. Officials in the South pointed out that calls to the North through the North-South hotline went unanswered earlier this week. Some communications channels, such as the military line, which coordinates the border crossing run to the jointly run Kaesong Industrial Complex, has been used. 
analysts believe Kim Jong-un's statements are likely intended to express more than anger over the new round of sanctions and over the joint military drills involving the United States and South Korea. The relatively young and inexperienced North Korean leader is likely also trying to shore up domestic support at home. That comes to us from The Guardian. The acting president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, has openly speculated that his predecessor's untimely death may have been the result of poisoning from foreign enemies and announced that he would launch an investigation into those sorts of claims. Chavez was diagnosed with pelvic cancer in 2011 and underwent four operations before ultimately dying from what sources called metastasis in the lungs. Maduro, a former bus driver and Chavez's hand-picked successor, has been running in an at times acrimonious election campaign with opposition leader Capriles in the lead-up to an April 14th election. The two candidates are accusing each other of planning violence. Tuesday marked the last day of official mourning for Chavez. His embalmed remains are to be taken to a military museum on Friday. And that comes to us from Reuters. As newly selected Pope Francis steps forth as the next leader of the world's 1.2 billion Roman Catholics, his background is coming under scrutiny. The Argentine Catholic Church is being accused of being tacitly complicit in the brutal murders that typified the dictatorship which governed the country from 1976 to 1983. A court which sentenced three former military officers last month also noted that the church hierarchy closed its eyes to the killing of progressive priests. The new pope, Jorge Bergoglio, was head of the Jesuit order from 1973 to 1979 and part of that hierarchy which backed the military junta and called its followers to be patriotic. Journalist Horacio Verbitsky author of the book El Silencio, accused Bergoglio of withdrawing his order's protection from two priests who were conducting missionary work in the country's slums and consequently jailed and subjected to inhumane conditions by the regime. Pope Francis will be Latin America's first pope. That comes to us from The Guardian. Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez Frias was laid to rest last week. Millions of Venezuelans, Cubans, and people around the world paid homage to his memory. Representatives of 50 governments, including 33 heads of state, attended his funeral on March 8th. Meanwhile, the U.S. President and Canadian Prime Minister could offer only tepid sentiments and sympathy with the Venezuelan people, expressing hopes of quote-unquote policies that promote democratic principles. Chavez personalized popular policies that defied foreign interests many Western leaders protected. Michel Chosodovsky, he has been an economic advisor to developing countries around the world, including Venezuela. Uh, he is the founder of the Center for Research on Globalization, and he joins us on the phone to share with us his thoughts about the impact of Chavez, both for the people and uh, the larger regional and uh, global picture. So, Michel Chosodovsky, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be on the program. Okay, so um, 
uh, Professor Chostovsky, I, I suppose it should be pointed out that uh, you've actually met with, uh, you've, you've, you've conducted some of your early research in Venezuela, correct? Well, in fact, uh, I, I spent uh, my earlier part of my career in Venezuela. I was an advisor to the Ministry of Planning, and, and uh, in that particular context, I put together um, a working group uh, which uh, was to uh, study poverty in Venezuela. Uh, that was in the mid-70s. And it was during uh, uh, the government of Carlos Andres Perez, um, and it was precisely those governments, uh, Acción Democrática, Cote, which uh, which were targeted by uh, by um, uh, you know by the People's Movement, by Hugo Chavez at a very early period. Um, I think, from my standpoint, the. You know, there's a sort of historical understanding of of what has happened, and 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 I think that's important. Uh, um, Venezuela was um, essentially a colony of the United States during the dictatorship of Juan Vicente Gomez. Uh, it was an oil uh, economy controlled by the major oil companies. It was a territory, and what they did is they installed dictators, Juan Vicente Gomez and then Perez Jimenez, and subsequently then you had the emergence of a two-party system, uh, which essentially uh, continued to pursue the, the interests of the oil companies, of the Rockefellers, of Wall Street, and so on, uh, in alliance with the local elites. Um, I witnessed this process uh, at a very crucial time. We came up with this study in, in, the, in the 70s, and literally the poverty indicators were, were absolutely devastating. Three quarters of the population were undernourished. Um, 20% of children never got to school. Only one-third of the children who registered at the schools actually completed primary education. Um, illiteracy was rampant. Um, there was no electricity for large sectors of the population, no water. We documented this very carefully. And what happened is the report was then confiscated by the cabinet of, 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 um, uh, of President Carlos Andres Perez at the time. And subsequently, I brought it out as a book. I mention this because it's, it's this was the project for Venezuela of the United States of America. It was to extract the oil wealth, uh, share some of it with the local elites, very wealthy, uh, um, you know, very wealthy property-owning classes, uh, a small middle class, and, and uh, essentially leave the entire population in, in a state of poverty. That is the the background, and that is the basis of the Bolivarian Revolution. Um, and uh, uh, the whole thrust of, of, uh, of Hugo Chavez and his commitment um, is, it was, to, was to turn, was to essentially uh, channel the oil resources towards uh, improving the standard of living of uh, the Venezuelan population. 
And in that regard, I mean, the indicators are very revealing. They're extremely revealing because they show uh, how in a matter of, uh, what, he was, he was president during 14 years. I should also mention that he was elected president. He never, I mean, he won every single, every, all those elections he won with the exception of one. And he, uh, in other words, he had popular support. Now, the, the irony is the United States will come up and say, well, we want democracy. What did they do for Venezuela? They installed dictators, okay? Mm-hmm. And then they installed proxy regimes, uh, which were, were corrupt, etc. And here we have a president who was elected, uh, who had popular support, and who implemented a whole series of changes in the national economy. But I think, above all, uh, Washington... Um, resented Hugo Chavez because Hugo Chavez actually uh, started to uh, initiate projects at the level of Latin America where governments would join hands and take a stance against Washington. And this hadn't happened. It was, it was uh, you know, it, it, it went a little bit against the whole notion of... of uh, uh, of, uh, you know, the Monroe Doctrine, which was, say, Americans of Americans, but which essentially meant United States controls the hemisphere. And uh, there you had a, you had a president who, um, who started establishing alliances with, uh, with other, uh, countries in the region, including countries which weren't necessarily socialist, but they, but the whole issue of sovereignty was behind that. Um, there was a long history of, of throughout, Latin, <clears throat> throughout Latin America. I mean, one country after the other was being dominated by these foreign interests. Well, absolutely. I mean, I mean no, I, I, I started my career in Latin America. I was in Chile during the coup, uh, and I, I lived through the, 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 both through the Allende period and the dictatorship. And then subsequently I was in, in Argentina and lived through another coup in '76. Now, all these coups were instigated by the CIA. We know that. Henry Kissinger was behind the coup in Chile. Allende was assassinated. Uh, so we've got a long history, and we can go back to Central America, how they, how they, you know, how they, how they ultimately uh, uh, destabilized a working democracy in Guatemala and then initiated what was referred to the Salvador, the Salvador option, which was creating death squads which would go in and kill people and ultimately uh, sustain, either sustain the dictatorships or alternatively sustain proxy, proxy regimes uh, which were under some kind of democratic facade, which is the, the, you know, the, the fashionable um, modus operandi today. Is you say we're in favor of democracy and then you, you install a you install a, a president which, who is ultimately obeying orders from Washington. But I mean, I, I, I saw this happening that I, when I lived in Peru. There was, a, there was a progressive movement within the armed forces. It wasn't particularly a democratic parliamentarian uh, type of, of process, but the United States didn't want to have anything to do with it. They, 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 they destabilized it. Uh, and then, again, in the 1980s, what was it? It was the rule of the IMF and the World Bank. Mm. Now, Chavez defied all those things. and he, In other words, he defied neoliberalism. 
He defied the imposition of the Washington Consensus, and uh, and he did it with with a uh, with the support of large sectors of of the population, not only in Venezuela but throughout throughout the hemisphere. And he was also able to defy uh, Washington on many levels. There was a coup attempt in 2002, and then there was a counter coup that uh, he in which he was able to prevail. And then I seem to recall uh, another incident where there was a major, the major corporations uh, staged a lockout, and, and still the people backed Chavez through all of that. No. Well, absolutely. That that I think. There was there were several attempts to uh, to destabilize Chavez throughout that period, uh, which failed. Um, and this government has faced very very difficult circumstances. Uh, uh, you know, I went back to Venezuela several times. I met Chavez a few years back. Um, the the structure of the state did not fundamentally change. In other words, the, the, the working of the ministries, the, the, the system of allocating contracts, public works, that, so that it, it, he wasn't able to actually sort of restructure the whole state apparatus, and, and so that they were operating in, in, a, in a sort of a, a dual mode. You had educational programs that would go through the old, which would go through the Ministry of Education, and then you had educational programs that were grassroots based, uh, and the same thing for healthcare. Um, and and people realized that this was still a very corrupt system. You you had a, a situation which still prevails today of complete insecurity in Caracas. You can't walk the streets at night. Why? Because there are armed gangs. Uh, linked to the drug trade, most probably this is this is also a stage type of process, but it created a lot of resentment, particularly in the nation's capital, by by the middle class uh, uh, against Chavez. And the, the the problem is that you don't transform this kind of despotic capitalist economy from one day to the next and change the structure of the state and and so on. And, uh, and so that the, there was a very big battle to be waged. There was a fair amount of corruption even within, uh, you know, within the, the Bolivarian movement. Um, that, I think, has been, it, I think we have to acknowledge it. it. And I think Chavez knew about it. And he was very pragmatic. He made alliances with, he made alliances with people who uh, ensured a certain level of political stability within the armed forces. Um, and th- those, those, uh, that po- day-to-day policy was absolutely essential to to keep the the system functioning. But there were there are many many contradictions, and one fears that in the wake of his of his passing, that that uh, some of these that certainly the United States is planning to to destabilize that, that, sounds, that we know that that sounds critical because it's if, if i'm following you correctly it sounds like what you're saying is that he maintained that kind of uh, that same sort of uh you know, caliphate of control uh but instead of uh, favoring the corporations and uh he you know filling his own pockets he was just using it for the people but that that same you know sort of corrupt uh, violent character uh, of the the state maintained its uh, grip. Yeah, no, I, 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 absolutely. Um, 
I think it's very important for us to follow very carefully what's going to happen in, in the months ahead. Uh, uh, I think there's a lot of, there's a very big commitment on the part of the population uh, to make this process continue. And, and indeed, the process, it's not, it's not Chavez that determines this process. It's ultimately still a grassroots base, a grassroots process which is, which is uh, occurring. And, and it, it uh, as I mentioned, it has changed the life livelihood of many, many people in, in, in that country. Uh, uh, they resolved the problem of illiteracy. There was widespread illiteracy in the, in the 70s and 80s. Um, we, they've resolved the issue of... of, of um, University of, tuition? Well, uh, you know, the whole educational system has been turned upside down. I mentioned to you that, that out, of, out of 100 kids of primary school age, 20% don't enter school, and only one-third of those who enter, in other words, the 80 who do enter, only one-third of them actually finish primary school. That was the situation in the, in the, in the late 70s. Now, uh, today, according to UNESCO, um, the, the number of children attending school increased from 6 million in 1998 to 13 million in 2011. It almost doubled, and that school enrollment rate is now almost 100 percent. So that, that, that the, the, you know, the, the project was essentially to channel oil resources to building social and economic uh, infrastructure in areas of health, education. There were very significant increases in the levels of health um, with, with a focus on, uh, on uh, grassroots health care. The, the, the Cubans, of course, contributed tremendously to that process, mm. sending in doctors. I, I recall when I started up uh, analyzing poverty, I mean, the situation of, of access to health care was virtually nil on the part of the of the you know the poor of the let's say I would say maybe fifty or sixty percent of the population didn't have access to health care, and uh, and uh, you know the the number of doctors per thousand population was 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 dismal. I mean, in in uh, in the nineties there were twenty there were uh, there were twenty doctors for a hundred thousand population, and in and by uh, and um, and. And uh, the latest figures uh, indicate that that number has gone up four times. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, 80 doctors for 100,000 population, which is still not not sufficient. But it it there's, there's been a marked improvement in all those social indicators, malnutrition, um, the infant mortality. I mean, we when when we started investigating infant mortality and and the the role of infectious diseases, uh, um, you know, um, gastro, uh, uh, the, the, the figures were just devastating. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I, I worked with a, uh, a professor at the university who was a nutritionist and who looked into the whole issue. We came up with figures, uh, when, well, as I mentioned, 77% of the population was below the minimum calorie and protein requirements. Those were our estimates. I went to the university. I said, this sounds absolutely, uh, you know, 
very, very high. I asked this top specialist who was actually, he was not particularly a progressive individual, but he was a very committed scientist. And he said, yes, you're right. He said, whatever we've estimated corroborates what you've got there. Now, today in Venezuela, that situation has been turned upside down. And uh, had it not been for the Bolivarian Revolution led by Hugo Chavez, Venezuela would still be this, this uh, poor, marginalized country, uh, very much uh, similar to other countries in the region, uh, you know, like the Dominican Republic or Mexico, where you have these high levels of, of poverty and unemployment. And, uh, and they managed, uh, you know, it, it's not, it's, mm-hmm. it, these are achievements uh, amidst lots of contradictions. It's not necessarily a revolution, but it, 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 it's a process uh, which cannot be denied, and, and, uh, and it, it, it also is uh, something which the United States cannot deny because those figures are there. Professor Chosodovsky, just speaking of those contradictions, I I just want to kind of nail this point. Given your experience with the country and, uh, you know, and the population, there's tremendous devotion to uh, Chavez. And and I guess I, I, I think we really need to ask that critical question. Is this uh, devotion to a, uh, that, that popular, uh, you know, self-determination uh, kind of uh, governance, or is it more the devotion towards a benevolent dictator who, if you well, will, that's brought I, these changes no, about? I, well, you know, I, Chavez was a very important figure, and he certainly had, uh, he was also what, what, what Latin Americans call the caudillo, you know, the leader. But he was from very humble background, um, he communicated on a, on an equal footing with people. He never tried to he you know he meet people. There was a dialogue. Um, he, he you know he comes from a he, he comes from the interior of, of Venezuela uh, and uh, of of a very modest background uh, and. Uh, uh, he is—he's—he's uh, he's not a white uh, uh, European, you know. He really is—he, you know, he represents the people of the country, and and I think people realize that. Okay, mm-hmm. they don't—they he doesn't look down on people. Okay, no, no. Which is which the, the you know if you're talking about uh, uh, you know the cult of personality, there's that look down um, type of of uh, of. Um, uh, of behavior, but but the popularity of Hugo Chavez is the fact that he uh, he put himself at the same level as everybody else. Not to say that he didn't exercise power; he did. You know, he did, and and uh, he certainly he certainly wanted to prevail in that regard. But he always respected all the rules of democracy. You can't you can't say that he tried to fiddle anything. All the uh, when. President Jimmy Carter went down as an observer. He he uh, he said, "Yes, this is the most democratic country on earth." He made he made that statement. He said Venezuela's electoral system was quote the best in the world. Now you don't get that kind of statement 
uh, even in the United States of America. Okay, <laughs> so there we are. We have this. We have a, a, a U.S. president who can order extrajudicial assassinations of anybody on planet Earth, because that's what the, the legislation now implies. And then they claim to be de- a, a model democracy. They're not. There's some kind of democratic dictatorship in the, in the United States of America, run mm-hmm. by Wall Street, the oil companies. They're, it's a proxy government as well. But the, the whole issue is that here we have a country um, that um, has challenged the hegemony of the United States in the hemisphere. Um, And uh, it's a very important historical process in the same same way as the Cuban Revolution challenged, Hmm. um, you know, challenged um, uh, the hegemony of the United States and still challenges that hegemony. Um, And uh, I think we have to... uh, look forward and, and, and ensure that those achievements uh, are not lost in, uh, in uh, U.S. dirty tricks, which are, are probably on the drawing board of the State Department and the CIA. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across the country. We're also podcast at globalresearch.ca. We can also be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. Continuing our conversation on the death of Chavez and its impacts, I brought up with Michelle Chosodovsky the question of whether Chavez may have been assassinated by Washington. We've been talking in, in rather general terms about uh, the extent to which uh, Chavez and his Bolivarian revolution defied uh, the international order. Do we have... Uh, you know, very compelling uh, evidence of that, that Chavez himself was actually a target of an uh, assassination attempt. There were reports to the effect that, that um, Chavez was on the CIA, FBI list. We do not have at this stage, uh, let's say pending a, 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 an investigation, that uh, Chavez was actually the target of what what is referred to as a scientific assassination, where, where poison or, or was inserted into his body. We know that the technology exists, that there are secret CIA weapons which allow for the triggering of cancer and heart attacks, and that has been documented. So that's we, the means. We have the means. The, the means are there. Uh, I, we, we published a couple of articles today on, on the issue of of um, of how the the CIA can trigger uh, heart attacks, but the the, the issue of, of cancer is also a, a possibility. But what I should mention, and it's very important, that while we don't have proof specifically that he was assass- that the cancer was caused by uh, by uh, a CIA uh, operation, what we do know is that. Uh, there is an assassination program, and I'd like to address that very briefly. Uh, Back in the 70s, um, the Frank Church Committee, it was a Senate Special Select Committee of the Senate. It was called the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, and it was subsequently called the Church Committee because Senator Frank 
church played a key role. And that committee um, uh, was entitled Alleged Assassination Plots Involving Foreign Leaders. It essentially focused on, on uh, five or six, four or five main leaders. There were other reports. There was also a report on Chile. But the church committee interim report focused on alleged plots to kill uh, Patrice Lumumba of the, of the Congo, Fidel Castro, uh, Rafael Trujillo of the Dominican Republic, uh, No Din Diem of Vietnam, and, and, uh, and René Schneider, who was assassinated, was a general who was assassinated um, in, uh, I, I believe it was just before the, the 1970 elections. Now, that report was published in 1975, President Ford implemented what was called an executive order. It was EO 11905. It was in response to the findings of the Church Committee. And, he, and this executive order said textually um, that, uh, that U.S., that no person employed by by or acting on behalf of the United States government shall engage or conspire uh, to engage in assassination of foreign leaders. Okay, or, or, and that was that that executive order was was um, uh, then reaffirmed by President Jimmy Carter when he uh, came into office, and it was also reaffirmed by uh, by President Ronald Reagan in 1981 in an executive order 12333, which uh, essentially says, no, uh, same text, no person employed by or acting on behalf of the United States government shall engage in or conspire to engage in assassination. Now, what happened? Um, in October 2001, in the wake of 9-11, uh, President George W. Bush, um, uh, following in the, in the footsteps of his father, who was part of a, of a CIA uh, cabal, he, he was he was CIA director before he became president. I'm talking about his his father, but George W. Bush repealed the or revoked the executive order of the Reagan administration uh, and um, confirmed that henceforth uh, foreign leaders could be killed. Uh, by the U.S. government. In the name of fighting terrorism. Well, it, 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 it was formulated, it was couched in the context of the, of the war on terrorism, but in effect, it also said we can also kill um, foreign uh, leaders who support terrorism or who are state sponsors of terrorism or who are uh, heads of state of rogue, uh, of rogue countries or rogue states. So the, the, the thing is that what happened is that with the revocation of Executive Order 12333, which confirmed the ban initially enacted by President Gerald Ford, uh, pursuant to the, to the findings of the Church Committee, uh, when that was revoked, essentially the President of the United States had the green light to order the assassination of political leaders. And, and that was very, very clear. So that, so that uh, the, the revocation of EO 12333 gives essentially carte blanche to the President of the United States to 
to order an assassination and to transmit those instructions to the CIA. It's not the, it's not the, it's not the U.S. State Department that's going to implement assassination. It's the CIA. But then the CIA, which has been doing this kind of stuff for years, going back to the 50s in, in Guatemala, okay? They specialize in targeted assassinations. But they do it covertly, and they don't do it with the support of the executive or the, or, or the, or the U.S. Congress. Mm-hmm. And what, what, what this revocation signifies is that the CIA receives the orders to assassinate foreign leaders, and they are they are themselves protected. They can't be then, uh, you know, um, you can't go after the CIA and said, well, no, you didn't have the authority to do it because they get the instructions directly from the president. So, what I um, derive from this um, analysis is that um, President Obama uh, can decide whether he wants to kill a, a foreign leader. And then he transmits the orders to the CIA. And no, uh, nobody can hold him to account. He's just nobody his will. Can, count, uh, can hold him accountable. But now, uh, bear in mind that with recent developments on the, on the targeted assassination programs, which um, have been recently debated in the U.S. Congress, uh, and not a single voice even within the Democratic Party have come up to say, well, no, we shouldn't give the, the U.S. Uh, head of state the authority to order the extrajudicial and lawful assassination of a U.S. citizen or a foreigner on U.S. soil or anywhere in the world, because that's really what the legislation implies. It is the lawful assassination of individuals whoever they may be, including foreign leaders, so that if we take the revocation of, of, of um, Executive Order 12333 by George W. Bush in, in uh, September 2000, I'm sorry, October 2001, plus the recent developments with regard to Obama's right to lawfully assassinate whoever he wants, we can <laughs> derive from that very logically, that quite a number of people are on the list. Now, it mm. doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be assassinated, but they're on a list. And I have no doubt that um, that uh, Hugo Chavez, from the information we have, was on an assassination list. A deadly, combi- yeah, a deadly combination, uh, to be sure. I-, I wanted to just sort of maybe, uh, if we could uh, conclude a little bit, uh, we're looking forward. Uh, this uh, Maduro, uh, is uh, Chavez's successor, will be uh, move- going into the next election uh, against a, a right-wing uh, challenger. I- I'm wondering now, with uh, Chavez gone, uh, what uh, how the... Th- what, what the future looks like uh, in terms of not, not just for the country but for the, uh, the world picture. Are we able to sort of project forward in terms of uh, has this, uh, is this going to lead to a strengthening of resistance or is it going to lead to a, a more easy control by uh, the United States and Western forces? Well, this is a very important question. I, um, we, if we look at the, at the situation Globally, we see that the United States is involved in um, destabilizing 
any destabilizing countries which do not conform to their agenda. That's the situation which prevails in, in, uh, it prevails in Syria, the, the tax uh, pertaining to Iran, North Korea. In other words, countries which do not toe the line, um, they are the target of, of uh, uh, and they are the target of regime change. Uh, there's no question that that uh, these that um, as far as Venezuela is concerned, uh, there is um, there is an intent in the wake of Chavez to destabilize that country. They've even insinuated this in their in their in their various statements. Okay, that they're expecting uh, greater cooperation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The leading opposition figure, Capriles, has been going back and forth to Washington in the last few weeks, uh, and uh, he's, you know, meeting up with the State Department, the National Endowment for Democracy, and so on. So that there's not, there is a, a scenario of attempting to destabilize Venezuela after Chavez. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and and the, the, the question of transition... Uh, will be the the political transition will be used by by Washington to implement that uh, that process. Okay. Well, um, Michelle Chosodovsky, I, I really thank you for those perspectives on this uh, passing of uh, Hugo Chavez, and uh, we'll just have to look forward and, and see how things unravel. So, thank you again for uh, your analysis. Thank you very much. Delighted to be on the program. And uh, we've been speaking with Michelle Chosodovsky, founder of the Center for Research on Globalization and a um, emeritus professor of economics at the University of Ottawa. A new round of UN sanctions were leveled against North Korea in response to its recent nuclear test. Responding to the sanctions, as well as to military drills being conducted by the South and the U.S., the North has been threatening to cut off hotlines to the South and scrap the armistice, which ended the Korean War in 1953. Western governments and media have tended to portray the North as unstable and a threat. How accurate is this depiction? To put the Korean situation in a historical context, we are joined by Gregory Elich. Mr. Elich is on the board of directors of the Yesenovats Research Institute and sits on advisory boards for the Korean Truth Commission and the Korean Policy Institute. He has written extensively on North Korea and is the author of Strange Liberators, Militarism, Mayhem, and the Pursuit of Profit. Greg, there have been uh, these... uh allegations uh, out there about uh, the the threat posed by North Korea and uh, the prospect of him potentially uh, using a a nuclear weapon against uh, U.S. uh, interests or South Korean interests. Uh, I'm wondering if uh, there's uh, some way that we can help understand that uh, where the the, the legitimate concerns that North Korea might have. Can you give us a a little bit of a historical context? Sure. As usual, the uh, mainstream media leave out context when they present uh, issues like this. But context is essential for understanding what's going on right now. Uh, The first thing to understand is that uh, during the Korean War, the U.S. bombed and wiped out every single North Korean city, 
killed over two million North Koreans. So that memory of that experience is still very much alive in, in the minds of North Koreans. Ever since then, the, the North Korea has been under sanctions, severe sanctions, by the U.S. In fact, it's the most heavily sanctioned nation in the world. Uh, during the Bush administration, there were a series of, of um, six-party talks on um, nuclear disarmament, but uh, each time an agreement was, was reached, the U.S. Uh, undermined it uh, by imposing sanctions or freezing bank accounts, North Korean bank accounts, and so on. So we ended up with it at an impasse once again. Um, so North Korea saw what was happening in Iraq with the invasion, and they saw later on what happened with Libya, which had given up its nascent uh, nuclear weapons program. In both cases, you know, U.S. invaded or supported uh, armed uprising. And uh, so it's clear that uh, there's a definite power imbalance between the U.S. and, and North Korea, and it's only uh, real defense is to develop nuclear weapons. So it proceeded full bore on, on developing nuclear weapons. Um, back in uh, December 12th, they launched a, a peaceful satellite into space, and the U.S. responded by pushing through U.N. sanctions against uh, North Korea. And that, one thing to point out about the satellite launch is that uh, the uh, International Outer Space Treaty says that all nations have the right to exploration of space, and this is a direct quote, without discrimination of any kind. So North Korea was just exercising its natural international uh, rights by launching this satellite. And uh, the U.S. claimed that this is a ballistic missile test, but this is a very light missile, totally inappropriate for weapons use. And uh, it had, the missile had followed a, a, a sharp turn course in order to avoid flying over Taiwan and the Philippines, which is something that's totally inappropriate for a ballistic missile test if you're trying to test it as a weapon. Nevertheless, the U.S. pushed through its sanctions, including uh, the most important part, putting a freeze on, on certain bank, bank transactions with North Korea, and also um, the North Korean space program. Um, the other part of the, the thing to keep in mind is that there's actually been a whole series of aggressive uh, moves by the U.S. Uh, back in uh, October, they had a security consultative meeting with uh, South Korea in which the U.S. and South Korea developed plans for what they called a kill chain and uh, a deterrent policy. Taylor deterrence, they called it, in which case the U.S. would be involved in military clashes between South and North Korea, and there would be uh, a wider range of, uh, of scenarios that the U.S. and South Korea would be willing to use military force. And the kill chain would be uh, the program to target uh, North Korean missile sites even before they're in position. So it's like anticipated, like basically it's a preemptive attack. And they, they, you know, they um, laid out a plan for uh, a preemptive attack in various scenarios, including, according to the South Korean military, uh, even in peace, in both peacetime and wartime scenarios. Mm. And there's also the fact that the U.S. Uh, offered South Korea an exemption under the military technology control regime, which is which is places a limit on, on the range of uh, ballistic missiles. 
they allowed South Korean exemption to extend the range of their ballistic missiles to cover the entire territory of North Korea. So the whole range of a very aggressive actions taken against North Korea, and uh, North Korea went ahead and conducted a nuclear test in response to sanctions and these aggressive moves. Which uh, are backed by the United Nations, which uh, begs the question, what, how, how isolated is North Korea uh, in the wider regional context? Well, it's, it's quite uh, isolated. It's, it's um, one of the unfortunate things about the U.S. Uh, uh, financial pressures and sanctions is that uh, they, they don't just impose sanctions. U.S. officials go to other countries and they pressure officials in other countries to, and also of, of international banks to close North Korean accounts and to uh, not uh, allow North Korea to open a bank on its territory or engage in an normal international trade. So there's definitely a squeezing of North Korea. Mm. Well, what kind of threat does North Korea pose to the United States other than the, uh, the ability to defend itself? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's enough of a threat, apparently. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, in terms of a military capability, um, they have an extensive armed force of, and uh, of con with conventional weapons that are mostly outmoded. In terms of nuclear weapons, uh, they have conducted three nuclear tests. The first one was essentially a failure. The second one was a nuclear device. It wasn't a bomb. It was, and this last test was apparently of a, of a smaller and lighter uh, nuclear device. I don't know if it's a bomb or not, but it's, it, they have a long ways to go to develop a bomb. And then, in order to put it on a missile, you have to have a missile that's capable of um, of having a guidance system and a re-entry uh, vehicle that would, can withstand the heat of, uh, of passing back through the atmosphere. North Korea has not developed any of that yet. And you would have to have a a nuclear weapon that's small enough and light enough to put atop of a, 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 a ballistic missile. And North Korea doesn't have that either. So in terms of nuclear threat, there is no nuclear threat. It's a purely conventional weapon threat. But uh, I think that explains a lot of the uh, rhetoric coming out of North Korea is that uh, they don't really have a military capability that can fend off the U.S. if the U.S. is really intent upon on a military attack. So they have to... Uh, uh, try to appear to be more threatening to fend off uh, the U.S. What then is the end game? What is it that uh, will finally make the U.S. Uh, happy or satisfied at the end of all of these sanctions and military drills and whatnot? What are we looking well, unfortunately, at? Uh, unfortunately, we're in a feedback loop. So uh, North Korea has always responded uh, with negotiations when they're approached diplomatically. And that's always been a productive uh, mode. But when they're threatened, they respond with firmness. And unfortunately, the Obama administration has steadfastly refused any negotiations whatsoever with North Korea, and has only applied pressure. So we're in a feedback loop where the U.S. imposes sanctions, North Korea responds by conducting a nuclear test, the U.S. will impose more sanctions, and there, there's just actually no exit routine. As far as what will satisfy the United States, there's only one thing that will satisfy the United States, and that's the overthrow of the North Korean government. And I think that's what they're aiming at through this pressure. In fact, uh, just, uh, just earlier this week, the Treasury Department imposed additional sanctions over and above the U.N. sanctions, where they froze 
uh, assets and prohibited transactions with North Korea's main foreign exchange bank. And any any international banks doing business with that will also have their uh, will be barred from uh, conducting business with the United States. So they're definitely trying to uh, starve North Korea of, of all um, foreign currency and, and crush its economy. Does North Korea have any kind of influence? Do they have any kind of resources or, or anything else that uh, would, like you know, Iraq, you know, one of the other countries listed by Bush as the access of evil, you know, Iraq has oil and Iran has oil, and I, I'm wondering what assets, uh, you know, mineral resources or, or others uh, might uh, North Korea possess that uh, might be part of the motivation here? Uh, well, uh, North Korea has, um, it does, it's mainly mountainous, 80% of the country is mountainous, and it has and, uh, a pretty fair amount of mineral resources that uh, that would be uh, suitable for U.S. corporations to uh, exploit. But I think the main motivation is that uh, if you, if you um, assume that North Korea can be overthrown, that would allow U.S. Uh, soldiers to be placed right on the border with with China and apply more pressure. So you'd have uh, U.S. bases right on the border with China, helping to encircle that nation even more. Mm. And that, I think China is actually the real target. Mm-hmm, yeah, that brings up what they call the the pivot. Could you maybe explain how North Korea would, uh, uh, I guess, intersects with the the, the plans around uh, the, the what they call the Asian pivot. Yeah, well, as the U.S. is shifting its military uh, emphasis towards Asia, and I think it's specifically with China in mind, but North Korea is used as a convenient excuse. So the U.S. is, in, is talking with nations in, in throughout Asia to become part of its anti-missile uh, defense, including South Korea. They're pressuring South Korea to, to become part of this, this uh, anti-missile defense, which is aimed supposedly at both North Korea and China. But mainly China. So, and and China has been described as being uh, North Korea's closest ally. Um, are are we seeing changes in that relationship? Uh, there have been some changes. In fact, the uh, they're cutting back on trade. I just read that the um, seafood uh, shipments have been cut significantly recently, and I think oil shipments have been cut too. Uh, I think a lot of this has to do with U.S. pressure. So, for instance, uh, on the, uh, the negotiations, U.N. negotiations in the Security Council over the sanctions after the satellite launch, the U.S. threatened China that if they don't agree to these sanctions, that uh, they're going to militarize their presence in, in Asia to a significantly larger degree. And I think China felt threatened by that. Now, uh, I was wondering what uh, if you have any uh, more insights into the uh, the conditions that the north that the people of North Korea are are enduring and and how that has uh, um, uh, worsened over the last uh, well, I guess since Obama came into power. Uh, yeah, well, as I mentioned before, because uh, North Korea is 80% mountainous, it has very little arable land suitable for farming, and so they they pretty much always have to import uh, food in order to have enough to get by. And uh, one problem they have is in, in a lot of their factories are closing down because they can't get spare parts. They can't get spare parts because of U.S. sanctions and pressure on international banking to block 
uh, North Korea's access to foreign trade. Uh, nevertheless, North Korea's uh, economic situation has improved in the last few years relative to what it was, say, about 10 years ago, but it still has a long ways to go. And conditions are, are pretty harsh in, in, out in the uh, outlying areas. I was wondering, uh, you used the term feedback loop uh, earlier. Do, do you see realistically any mechanism by which uh, you know, the, the world situation can somehow escape this and, and we could see uh, um, you know, some sort of a, a normalization of, uh, of relations between North Korea and the rest of the world community? Uh, I think the only hope is to have to come from South Korea, but unfortunately the last most recent election, uh, Park Geun-hye was elected. She's from the conservative New Frontier Party, and uh, I think she actually had some, uh, she was giving indications of wanting to improve relations with North Korea, which was a significant improvement from her predecessor, but uh, but her party is, doesn't have the same opinion. I think she's under a lot of pressure from the, from the South Korean military and and others in her party to uh, to maintain a, a hostile uh, uh, relationship with North Korea, but uh, unless she can overcome the opposition in her own party in order to improve relations, or we may have to wait five years for the next election in South Korea for there to be improvement. But in the foreseeable future, I, I don't see any any way out. Mm. Well, that's uh, certainly a. Uh unfortunate state of affairs but uh, Greg Elich uh, I want to thank you very much for for sharing this these perspectives with us on our program uh, yeah if you don't mind I'd like to add one more thing I meant to mention of course you have time uh, in the uh, negotiations over the sanctions after this latest nuclear test the U.S. is pushing for article 42 of chapter 7 which would have given them military enforcement so it would open up the prospect of, of of a war, basically. Hmm. China wouldn't go along with that, but uh, one, but one thing it is, is in the sanctions is that uh, it, nations are uh, ordered to board and inspect North Korean ships. And I think it's a very dangerous situation. We'll have to see how things, how events develop in the days ahead. Well, thank you for that, uh, Greg. Uh, Gregory Elich is on the board of directors of the uh, Yasanovich. Research Institute and uh, recently appointed to the as, as an advisory on the advisory board of the Korean Policy Institute, as well as sitting on the advisory board of the Korean Truth Commission. He's the author of Strange Liberators, Militarism, Mayhem, and uh, the Pursuit of Profit. Thank you very much, Gregory Elich. Thank you. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.